Welcome to War Stories. I'm Preston Stewart, and this is a show where we talk about America's military history through the lens of individual acts of heroism and valor. Enjoy. Today we're talking about First Lieutenant Derek Hines. Lieutenant Hines graduated from the United States Military Academy at West Point in 2003. He commissioned as a field artillery officer and went off to Fort Sill to complete his training before going to and graduating from Ranger School, at which point he would move on to his unit, the 173rd Airborne Brigade out of Vicenza, Italy. As a field artillery officer, um, Lieutenant Hines would pick up the role of being a fire support officer. Now, a fire support officer is responsible for the coordination of, we'll say, large-scale munitions. So when you have a unit on the ground, they're oftentimes supported with artillery, mortars, close air support, which would be fixed-wing aircraft, or rotary-wing air support, which would be helicopters, Apaches, and Kiowas, for instance. The person on the ground within the Army that coordinates that is a fire support officer. The FSO would have a team of 13 Fox MOS forward observers. Uh, the enlisted soldiers would be doled out to the platoons and the fire support officer would sit with the company headquarters where he advises and helps the commander plan operations in order to, he assists the commander as the commander is planning the operation. The fire support officer is providing guidance on the assets that they can use for that operation. So often the FSO is tied in pretty closely with the headquarters element and with the company commander. This is the role that Lieutenant Hines would be filling as his unit deployed to Southern Afghanistan, Zabal province in 2005. Zabal province is an interesting location in Afghanistan where it sits on the Pakistan border. It's the Southeastern portion of the country right outside or butts up against Kandahar province and is very near Kandahar city, but it's, it's a little wide from southeast to northwest, so it incorporates um, aspects of Kandahar, kind of green, lush valleys, as well as some mountain ranges that you start to see as you get further north and east in Afghanistan, especially along that Pakistan border. Lieutenant Hines and his unit would be in Zabal province, specifically an area called Kalat, and at the time of their deployment, they are going to make up a total U.S. force of about 20 thousand across the entire country. So 20,000 across all of Afghanistan is about a fifth of what we would have during the peak troop levels in 2010 and 11. It's a big ask to do much of anything. Not a lot changed in that country between 2005 and 2010. The reason for the troop surge is because we realized we weren't able to get done what we needed to get done. So the ask of Lieutenant Hines and his unit was no different than the ask of the 100,000 plus troops in that country in 2010. They were just asked to do more with less. So their area of responsibility would have been substantially greater. I mean, a massive part of that. There's an area called Day Chopin within Zabal, kind of a district within. And, and the number of people that would have been responsible for these districts is staggering. I mean, it's as we get into 2010 and 11, you're going to see Army and Marine units responsible for, you know, two, three, four, maybe 10 square miles. At this point in the war, you're going to have units responsible for entire provinces, hundreds of square miles. It's, it's not feasible. 
They can't actually look over that whole area. So they're going to have their hands full and they're going to have their hands full from day one. In Zabel, it's a different enemy than you run into in other parts of the country. Now, it's a little bit of a gray zone. So it's not as though you cross over a line and bam, you're fighting Taliban. And then you go over here and bam, it's Al-Qaeda or some other um, insurgent group. But the Taliban as a movement drew heavily from Pashtun regions of the country. And the Pashtun, um, the Pashtun groups are primarily in the south, right around Kandahar City. So Zabal is going to be heavily Pashtun, which means that there's going to be a substantial Taliban force that's homegrown. And that's where the big difference comes in versus other parts of the country, especially a little further north and east where you might get um, some folks coming across the border from Pakistan that may or may not actually live in Afghanistan, may not be um, Afghans. When you get into the south of the country, you tend to run into more people that are homegrown. That's their village. That's their town. And they have joined a group, um, a local group in their minds. So it's just a little bit different. But that that piece that they're fighting a local enemy is going to take part in this story here. In Zabel, the mission of Lieutenant Hines and his unit is going to be twofold. And this is where it becomes becomes a challenge asking this of any unit but especially a conventional army unit. They're being asked to nation build and help prop up the local government and, and provide and help run projects and set up projects and wells and schools and roads and, and improve the quality of life for the people in Zabal province. At the same time, they're responsible for providing security and eradicating the enemy threat. So talk about a thin line to walk. You have to try to protect the people and improve the area in which they live at the same time, take aggressive, violent action to remove enemy elements in the same place. And add on top of that, it's not really clear throughout our entire tenure in Afghanistan. If the people in that village actually want you there, right? So if the people in Zabal wanted the Americans there, it's still a challenge. It's still a challenge to somehow clear the Taliban forces who you can't tell who they are. And they usually live among the population while trying to maintain these civil projects. That's a challenge. Even if the people are 100% on your side, what if they're 50, 50, not even fully on the enemy side, but just 50, 50, how much harder does that become? Now you're trying to set up projects for people who may or may not, not only want you there, they might have been shooting at you the day prior. They might tell their brother that you're coming back tomorrow afternoon. Be ready. This is the challenge that Derek Hines and his unit were running into every day. And every, and many units ran into it beforehand and many will run into it after in Iraq and Afghanistan. How do you work with a unit? How do you work with a population if they're not, if they don't necessarily want you there? And how do you know if they don't really want you there? Because it's not always an overt comment. A lot of times they'll, they'll talk about how grateful they are to have Americans there and they want projects and they want protection and they want security. But I mean, they're stuck in a tough spot too, you know, so you can't, can't blame the citizen that's trying to figure out how to survive. That's the nature of people in Afghanistan throughout history is they have to figure out how to survive. It's a perpetual state of war. Nonetheless, Derek Hines and his unit are 
working on this mission for months on end. Throughout that time, Hines becomes known as the man that'll run to the sound of fire. There's a million ways people react in combat and none necessarily better than the other. But one of the ways is when somebody just runs towards it. They just get into the fight. Time and again, it sounds like Lieutenant Derek Hines is the one that is running towards the sound of battle to do everything he can to help his brothers. Which makes it no surprise then how devastated he was on October 21st of that year when an improvised explosive device, an IED, went off near an American vehicle and it killed all four American soldiers inside. Hines ran to the scene of the explosion, did everything he could to try to pull these American soldiers out of the vehicle, but it, it was to no avail. I mean, they, they had already, they'd already perished. You think about how that weighs on you, wanting to help, and there's scenarios where you just can't. There's nothing he could have done to have saved those men. It's not as if he'd gotten there three seconds earlier or whatever it might be, but it weighs on you. And it's hard to see people lost that you care about and that are close to you and that are, you know, in this case, doing the same thing as you. Another challenge is when you don't have anybody to attribute that loss to. So throughout history, we can see our enemy. We know we're fighting. I know it got a little foggy in the Vietnam War when there would be booby traps. And this is a similar, similar area I'm going to go to here. But it messes with your mind when you can't see the enemy and you don't have an opportunity to strike back. The IED threat in Afghanistan is this to a T, especially when it's a remote detonation. So there's not even, so there's a variety of different forms of improvised explosive devices. These are homemade mines. There can be, they can be as simple as a wire that runs to the mine that's buried in the dirt. Remember just about every single road in Afghanistan is dirt. Every single trail is dirt. It's very easy to build, to lay a mine in that dirt and people not see it. So some of these will have a wire that runs away, just like you'd have for your garage door opener. And you, on the other end, you attach it to a battery. And when those, those two ends connect, boom. So you might have somebody 50, 100, 500 feet away watching. And when you come near it, they're going to detonate it. There's other times there might be a radio signal. That was more common in Iraq and Afghanistan. Nonetheless, they might have a phone attached to the explosive device. And when an American unit or an enemy unit gets near it, that Taliban fighter can call the number associated with that bomb and it'll detonate. And then you have something called pressure plate, which is, it's a mine. It's a mine that when stepped on or, or depressed, it detonates. And these were used very frequently in the South. I think they saw, they were they, at, at times used across the country, but the Taliban in the South used these very, very heavily. And you could just set them and forget them. Now, sometimes they would even set them to where you had to be a certain weight for it to go off which means that an Afghan child could run across it all day. Even an Afghan male or, or female, a, a grown Afghan could run across this and not detonate it. But when an American soldier with, you know, weighing 150 pounds with an extra 70 pounds of gear steps on it, it detonates. You know, it, it depresses the pressure plate enough. Anyways, on October 21st, an IED is detonated near an American vehicle killing all four inside. The challenge continues of we don't know who did this. How do we not get back at them, but you'd like to see some action come from that. How do you, how do you stop this if you can't even see the enemy? Well, fortunately for Lieutenant Hines and his unit, they're tipped off. They understand that there's a suspect in a village called Balo 
that is responsible for emplacing and detonating this IED that killed four of their brothers. So they're going to go find him. Now, what makes Lieutenant Hines and his unit different here than many militaries throughout history, and in a lot of ways, I think how even the U.S. military is viewed at times, is they have an idea of where the suspect is. Remember, local Taliban, which means that he's going to be in his home. They could, you know, I, I guess in a movie scenario, maybe you hear it's calling an airstrike, or you're going in with a raid, and you're just going to shoot everybody inside. They take a different approach. Remember, the, the goal is not to, to kill everybody. The goal is to bring people to justice. It's allow the Afghan justice system, as new as it might be, to try to work. So they don't conduct a raid. But in the early morning hours of September 1st, 2005, Derek Hines and his unit surround this man's house and ask for him to come out and surrender. It's something that's generally called a tactical call-out. And it's, it's no less risky than a raid. Now, a raid, you're busting in the door and you're going in full speed and guns blazing potentially and you don't know what's on the other side of that door. But a tactical call-out isn't a foolproof solution to that. You're now standing outside what you think might be a Taliban fighter's house, somebody who's trying to kill you. You're standing outside of his house and saying, we're out here. Come out. We'll arrest you. You know, he, maybe he comes out. He might surrender. Maybe this is the first thing he's ever done and he's terrified and he, he, uh, he wants to give himself up and roll the dice with the Afghan legal system. It wasn't very effective at that time, so he probably would have come home. Or he could come out firing, which is what he did. He opened the door, started firing in every direction, was cut down by Afghan and American troops, but not before one of his surrounds struck and killed Lieutenant Derek Hines. Leading from the front, he was right there, ready to, ready to apprehend the suspect that was responsible for killing his brothers. And on the morning of September 1st, 2005, Lieutenant Derek Hines was killed in Bailo, Afghanistan. Now, his memory lives on in some incredible ways. If you look up Lieutenant Derek Hines, West Point, Afghanistan, add whatever you want to it, you're going to find a lot of memorials in his name. One of which that really stands out and that's that's rather well known is the Derek Hines, is the Derek Hines Unsung Hero Award. The Unsung Hero Award is awarded to a Division I hockey player every year that is that best exemplifies the qualities of sportsmanship, competitiveness, intelligence, and work ethic. And it's in memory, of course, of Lieutenant Derek Hines having spent four years at West Point on the Division I Army hockey team. So an incredible legacy that lives on due to his love to soldiers, his care, his work ethic, his incredible leadership. Lieutenant Derek Hines, Lieutenant Derek Hines, fire support officer serving the 173rd Airborne Brigade in Afghanistan, was killed in action September 1st, 2005. Hey, thanks for listening to War Stories. If you get a chance, it'd mean an awful lot if you could head over to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a review. It helps others to, to find the show. But thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.